of Mechlumala. Uh, I met the doctor in Uganda, Kampala, Uganda. And uh, when I met him, I met him through Pastor Fred Kimbangaya. And Pastor Fred hasn't had a chance to come out, but the doctor has a chance to come out. And when I met him, I was so intrigued. Um, it's hard to believe he's 75 years old. He preserves well, doesn't he? And I met he and his wife in Kampala, and they have a ministry there. And he is a trained oral surgeon. And this is what's fascinating about uh, Dr. Lamech. He, um, he got his education in the Soviet Union and communist Russia. And, and then he and his wife became believers. They have 12 children, 25 grandchildren. He survived Idi Amin, the revolution in Uganda. Somebody 75 in Uganda is like 105 in the United States. This is an amazing man. He, as far as I'm concerned, he's royalty in Uganda. And uh, he was over in Ontario, Upland, and he, they came a little bit closer today, so I had a chance to go pick him up. And then he has to be on an airplane at 5.30 in the morning in Ontario. So he's leaving at 2.30 tomorrow morning. But he wanted to come and be with our fellowship. And I want you to love on this man and make him feel welcome. Doctor, thank you for coming. Bless you, brother. You want to come share a little bit? Now, now I have a message, so you, you can't go long. All right. And by the way, uh, what I didn't mention is that uh, Dr. Lamala's wife passed away just recently. And um, in June. And his heart's broken. He came here to visit three of his 12 kids. Uh, one is in Virginia, one is in Boston, and one is in Arizona. And uh, he made a special trip to come and see all of us. So uh, why don't you share a little bit? And I'll, I'll just go hide over here. And he... All right. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. Um, pray the Lord. It's nice to meet you. Uh, bring you all greet, uh, all the love from Uganda the heart of Africa. Sometimes it is called the heartbeat of Africa. It's right down there. He has been there many times, and we appreciate his work. He has really been supportive to us, and uh, all is going very well. For me, I was uh, in the world, as we all know, and uh, one day I was visiting the church. I was sitting just between my wife and my daughter, and the power of God just fell on me. And I, the voice said, Lamech, your ways are not my ways. So I had raised my hands up and cried and surrendered my life to the Lord. From that time, I became very thirsty for the word of God as a profession, uh, a dental surgeon. I wanted to know more about the Bible. Pray the Lord. So I got to know more about it, read the Bible schools and all this sort of thing. One day then the Lord said, I want you to serve me. I said, well, I'm serving you. That's enough. Say, no, I want you in ministry, full-time in ministry. Said, how can I live? I don't want to look at the baskets in the church. I've been getting good money. He said, I'll take care of you. And I've seen his hand. Then he said that, I want to show you supernatural divine healing power. Because you have been healing people using your head knowledge. So, I gradually prayed for people, and I saw people getting healed supernaturally. Them walking, and the, the blind see, and the, even people with cancer and the incurable diseases like a massive sclerosis were being healed. So this is the ministry the Lord has brought me to, to carry on. 
I pray for people, and the Lord gives me power and all this sort of thing. There's one thing which I want to share with you. He said, I'll show you even hidden knowledge. The one knowledge which has showed me uh, is the hidden fruit, the forbidden fruit. You know about it, Adam, what he was, he was told, not to eat on the forbidden fruit. If you eat of it, you surely die. And he said, why? You see, before that, there was no disease at all. There was no anything. It was the, the this time when he ate of the tree that all the diseases were hidden in this fruit. So when he beat on it, it spread throughout the whole world. And you could not help it if you were breathing air. One day you would die. So he was separated, separated from the from God, that's his physical death, and then the spiritual death was because of his separation. So God bless you. I'm writing a book on that. One day we shall share more. God bless you. Right. Testing. Good. I got a new shirt. It good. You like that? It's not quite working. Can you lower the lights? You see how that works right there? Oh, okay, that's stupid. No, just, I was really excited about it. My kids are going to love it. All right, you can turn the lights back on now. All right, we are going to be in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I wanted to do Romans, and I thought, no. We're going to do Acts. We good with that? Good. I'm good with that. What's that? You're better with it? Okay. Acts chapter 1. And uh, hold your place in Acts chapter 1 and go over to Luke chapter 1. Hold your place there as well. Uh, and anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hands and they'll get you a Bible. There you go. Acts chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin with Luke chapter 1. And starting with verse 1, but I'm going to pray. Lord, I ask your blessing on the study of your word as we undertake... Uh, the study of the book of Acts or Acts of the Apostles, but in reality, Acts of the Holy Spirit or Acts of Jesus Christ or the Spirit of Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would minister to us, strengthen us, encourage us, inspire us, empower us, and bless us. All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, Luke chapter 1, I want to share this with you because the author of Luke is the same author as the book of Acts. Uh, Luke is the most prolific author uh, of the Bible. He's written more of the New Testament than any other author. And uh, Luke wrote the Gospel according to Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And he wrote both of these um, to one man uh, whose name was Theophilus. And so let's take a look at uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says, uh, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Now everyone say most excellent. Most excellent. This is a, an interesting term that you, you find uh, in the Greek. 
And it's, it's a, a statement of class. There were classes in the Roman Empire. Uh, you had plebes, etc. And this would be uh, one of the, the classes, Cretistos, which is uh, the equivalent of a governor or a senator. And so we know Theophilus' name means uh, loved of God or one who loves God, uh, beloved of God. All of those are wonderful titles. But Theophilus is a governor or he's quite possibly a senator. He holds a political rank uh, in the Roman government. And Luke is writing to him. And he's writing to him, and he wants to give him an account of Jesus, inasmuch as he says in verse 1, as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. He's ministering to a political figure. Does that bother anybody? I'm, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, amen, they need it. And so he is ministering to a political figure, somebody of the Cretistos class, this, uh, the most excellent. And, and we usually use that term in relation to judges or officials, most excellent. Uh, and so... This is, this is who the person is. He's a person of, of a ranking nobility of a government class within the Roman Empire. His name means beloved of God or lover of God. Now that's important to note because he's laying out all of the things that Jesus did when he was on this earth. And he does it in an orderly fashion. And he begins that there were eyewitnesses beginning with the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Meaning I received this and he received it from Paul. He traveled with Paul. Luke traveled with Paul. And, and he says, it was given to me, and I had perfect understanding of these things from the very first, and I wanted to write to you an orderly account that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke has taken time to instruct Theophilus. He's taken time to teach Theophilus. And now he's giving him eyewitness accounts, and he's, he's orchestrating this. Now, Luke was highly educated. And the reason why we know he's highly educated is if you go back to Colossians chapter 4, um, and in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician. Now that title, it was required that there were only two locations to obtain a med- medical degree in all of the Roman Empire. Now you could study in different locations in the Roman Empire, to be, but to be given the title of a physician, you had to have graduated either in Alexandria or in Rome, the, Rome itself. And, and, um, and this is where he studied. He was a highly educated individual, Luke was, and he was a physician. Now, they didn't operate with Obamacare in those days. If you, if you were a wealthy person, what you did is you, you purchased your own physician that traveled with you. You had a personal physician that traveled everywhere you went. So if you were of the nobility and the upper class, you'd have a physician that would travel with you. And so it is believed that, that Luke traveled with Theophilus and was assigned to Theophilus um, and, and Theophilus paid for him, and he was his, his indentured servant. He probably paid for his medical education. And we know him to be highly educated because of all of the gospel accounts and all of the New Testament writings, including Paul's, Luke uses 312 words in his writings that are not found anywhere else in the scriptures. And of, and of the two books that he's written, both Luke and the book of Acts, he has 50 medical terms that nobody else uses. Even his account of the crucifixion is, is a, 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 a detailed medical observation of the crucifixion. 
So Luke uses highly sophisticated words in his gospel accounts. He's a highly educated individual. More than likely, and, and church tradition says, that he was an indentured servant to Theophilus, this man of nobility of the Christisos, which is the, the, the governing authority of Rome. He was either a senator, Senator Theophilus, or he was a governor of a province. Now what they believe happened was this. When Paul was sent to Rome, and he was imprisoned in Rome, it was believed that Theophilus gave Luke, his, or gave Luke to Paul. And so Luke traveled with Paul. He said, Paul, you, you've touched me. I give you my, my, my surgeon. I give you my physician. You're going to need him far more than I am. And they traveled together. And it's believed that both Luke the Gospel of Luke, and the book of the Acts of the Apostles, or Acts of the Holy Spirit, written by Luke, were a gift back to Theophilus for the gift that he had given Paul. And he wanted to give to Theophilus a full account of not only when Jesus walked the earth, but what occurred after he was taken up, after the resurrection. And he wanted to lay this out in its absolute detailed aspect. And so we can see here that it begins in Luke chapter 1, but the portion we're going to cover is in Acts chapter 1, and let's pick up there. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made. Which one is that? Luke, right? We just read that, didn't we? Oh, and by the way, when he says, The former account that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach... Uh, in, in, in the gospel, according to Luke, Luke concludes by saying, thus it is written, this is Luke 24, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you were witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So Luke concludes the first account to Theophilus with that final writing. And then we find him writing here in the book of Acts. And he resumes after finishing the first dictate to Theophilus. And he resumes with this. Acts chapter 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began. That means he's not finished yet. He just started, right? Yes? Both to do and teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, and we just read that in Luke 24, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Luke is referring back to his original writing of the book of Luke or the, the, the account of Luke in regards to the gospel. And he's sharing what those issues were that were given to the apostles or the disciples. And now he's saying, this is after he was, he was taken up. So he wants Theophilus to understand the entirety of the power of the gospel and what it means to society. I want to take a minute to, to look at that tonight. Because as we begin the Acts of the Holy Spirit or Acts of the Apostles or, or the continuing Acts of Jesus Christ, because we saw in this one that he began 
And here we're going to see that he's, he's completing and continuing through the church. I want to take a look at what those things are that he's commanded us to do. And what he wanted Theophilus to take away from all that he was writing to him to give him that gift. Now all of his accounts, which interestingly enough, if you look at Paul's writings and you look at Luke's writings, the two of them together have very similar writing styles and use very same phraseology because... Luke was gleaning from Paul and, and writing and accounting for all these things. And as he was speaking with the other apostles, as Paul had done, they were all gleaning and writing these things through that process. And so I want to take a look at exactly what it was that Jesus began. He says that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes? And so, what did he begin? And we know in the scriptures, there's what's called Christophanies, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. But truly, what we find in the account of Luke, in the gospel account, is, is the birth of Jesus. It is the most fascinating, it's the one that we always reflect on at Christmas time, is the account of Luke, the Christmas story. Because it's so detailed. It's so insightful. And, and it's Luke, in, in Luke 18, when, when Jesus rebuked, he was indignant and it's one of the very few times we see this in the Gospels. He was indignant to the apostles because they wouldn't let the children come to him. And, and I'm thinking, what, what was it that Jesus began? Well, he began, um, in a sense, to speak through human lips. He came to this world in the form of a Emmanuel, God with us. Again, Luke uses that term, God with us. In the form of a little baby that grows, he covers the entirety of his, of his expanse of his life until his ministry begins. And, and can you imagine God wanting to take on human flesh and dwell with man? And one of the greatest joys he was going to have was to hold those little children. And the apostles rebuked the kids and said, don't let them. The disciples rebuked him. And Jesus said, let them come to me. He was indignant and furious with them. Imagine God holding these children and looking and thinking to himself, I know what your future holds. I know what's ahead of you. And as he, he lays all this down and he, 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 he outlines for mankind, Luke details this for Theophilus, and he lays out the entirety of it through, through the Gospels. And, it, and he says, It seemed good to me also in Luke chapter 1, having had perfect understanding of all the things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. And he says, they have come to me from, from on high. These were imparted to me from the Lord, and I want you to have them. And, and then when we come to the book of Acts, and he says, the former account I made to you, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given the commandments. Now I want to stop there and come over to 24, Luke 24 so we can see what the commandments were. Luke 24, we'll pick up at verse 46. It's the very last chapter of the book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. The commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering of many infallible proofs. So here's what he commanded them. Ready? Verse 46, then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary, for the Christ to suffer, 
and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That's pretty simple. I mean, we look at the role of the body of Christ and he says it's written that the Christ must suffer, rise from the dead on the third day. But then he says the role is that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. And I'm going to give you power to do a supernatural work. I'm going to give you supernatural power to do a supernatural work. So you look at this, repentance and remission of sins. What does repentance mean? To change. It means a, it's close, a 180 degree turn. So, so if, if you're walking away from the cross of Christ, to repent would mean to turn back to the Lord. It's, it's, it's just a complete turnaround of your life. Not 360 degrees, because then you'll be right back where you started. You want to go 180 degrees to the Lord. Repentance means change. Whatever is not in alignment with what God wants, you, you confess it and turn from it. Now, are we able to do that? In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. I can of my own self do nothing. I set you up. No, you can't. The only way that we can walk with the, with the Lord is by the power of His Spirit. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. For those of you who are in the middle of an addictive life and you're struggling right now and you're wondering if there's any hope, I want to share with you something. Please, encourage these folks tonight. For those of you who have been addicted where you never thought there was a way out, by the power of God's Spirit, your deliverance was established. It doesn't mean that you've been 100% perfect, but the, the, the addiction is now the exception and not the rule. That you're walking in the freedom of the Lord and you're having, you're having that victory. Can you raise your hand so the others would be encouraged right now? You see that? That's the power of God. And, and you look at that and he says, you must wait for that power that will come from on high. And, and what he's calling us to do is repentance and then remission of sins. What is remission? What, what, do, we, what do we think of in, if cancer's in remission? It's, yeah, it's, you're changing. It's going away. It's no longer eating away at your life. It's no longer destroying your body. It is in remission. It still can come back. You got to do checkups. There's always that potential in me that is in my flesh. Well, it's no good thing. I've got to keep monitoring it and following up with it. But it is no longer adversely affecting my body. It's in remission. Repentance and remission where we begin to change from the inside out. And people look at us and go, that's amazing. I was looking at a picture of Jan Michael Vincent. Does anyone know who that is? A couple people do. That guy was an Adonis. Just, just Google when you get a chance. Not now because it will clog the internet that we have as you're all surfing and not paying attention, which you're probably doing now anyways. 
Jan, Mike, Jan Michael Vincent was, he was just, he was rippled and he was just, he was, he was godlike. And, and you look at him today and he is wrecked. He's had an amputation. He's been a drug addict and an alcoholic continual. He's lost everything. He's in debt. He, uh, he's almost died. He's been in car accidents. And I showed my wife this picture of him. I said, I was trying to remember Jan Michael Vincent, Jan Michael Vincent, because I was thinking of Tony Stark being played by Robert Downey Jr. And his life was a wreck, and it's kind of turned around. I thought, you know, he's doing pretty well. He's 50 years old. He looks healthy. And I thought, who's that guy that never made it out? And it was Jan Michael Vincent. I pulled up a picture. I go, this is the guy, honey. He goes, oh, he's really handsome. I go, yeah, he's a good-looking guy. I go, this is what he looks like now. She goes, are you kidding me? It's awful. It's tragic. And, and, and his life is not in remission. It is in, it is in full, full stage misery and sin enveloping and, and invading every fiber of his body, destroying him. Completely destroying him. Health isn't feeling good. For example, you can be throwing up and still have optimal health. Because your body is properly reacting to the invasion and, and it's responding correctly. That's healthy. Health is an operable state of, of just operating at an at a, at a optimum level. That your body is, is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And if we think that pain is unhealthy, then we start taking pe- pills to, to numb the pain. All that does is it just allows this to continue to fester and manifest itself. We're just numbing the symptoms. I can take care of the symptoms of your sin. Money can do that. I, got, I, I mean, if you're enveloped in sin and you try to live life on your own with, with what you're doing, you are going to go bankrupt real quick and you're going to be on the streets. But I can deal with your symptoms. If I'm living a life of, of godliness and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm getting up early, and I'm staying in the Word, and I'm working hard. I more than likely have an income. I have a job. I have a roof over my head. I'm providing for my family. I'm honest. People can take me at my word. All of a sudden, you find that you're employable, and you can wake up at good hours, and you're not into things you shouldn't be into. And, and what happens is you, you make a pretty good living. And, and I can, from that living, cover your problems and, and the symptoms of your sin, but you're still in full full stage cancer sin. You're dying. You're dying. You're not in remission. You're not in repentance. All that's being dealt with are the symptoms of, of your sin and somebody else is covering that with a, a pill of a payment or a roof over the head that you're not paying for. They are. And all we're doing is it's, it's bad medicine. We're keeping someone from the consequences of, of, of what they would experience if they had to face life before God without your hand trying to shelter them from that. You see how that works? And so when it's talking about repentance and remission of sins, th- this, is, this, is what, this is what the gospel's about. You never want a life preserver unless you know the plane's going down. I mean, it's, you know, it's like Ray Comfort would say, are you sitting there holding on to a life preserver on an airplane while you're flying over the Atlantic Ocean? Have you ever seen any passenger doing that, just clinging to a life preserver? No. When do they, when do they pull those life preservers out? 
when you're watching the engine smoke and the fire go and, the, and things are shaking and the oxygen masks drop out, you're pulling that thing out and you're getting it all strapped on and remembering everything that they ever said that you never listened to. You know where the light is and the whole button and all of it. And, and while you're in the middle of all of this, you're realizing, I need this if I'm going to survive. So the point is this. You really don't care about a life preserver because you don't think you're dying. You don't think you're in sin or you don't think you need to repent. And what, what Luke pointed out to Theophilus as he was laying this out for a man that was at a high level of government office, what he was laying out to him is, I don't care if you're in a palace or you're in a stable. You need to repent. And sin needs to be in remission. You need to give your life to the Lord. And this should be preached in his name to all nations because there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved but that of Jesus Christ. Nobody can forgive you of your sins and no one can empower you to overcome the sin in your life but the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, it says, in, continuing in Luke 24, verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. And then he says in verse 49, Luke says this to Theophilus, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. You have a supernatural work ahead of you. You're going to need supernatural power. You call on the Lord, just like Dr. Lumala pointed out when he realized he needed the Lord. At that moment, he cried out to God. God gave him that power. If you're trying to do the Christian life on your own, you're going to fail. And what, what Luke is going to point out to Theophilus is nobody can do this on their own. I can guarantee that the people who raise their hand who have been delivered from addictive behavior, addictive drugs, whatever it is, those who raise their hands, I can guarantee you every single one of those people that raise their hand will tell you the thousand times they tried on their own and failed. The thousands of times they tried on their own and failed. And it wasn't until they clinged to the Lord and they waited for that power and they rested in the Lord to overcome the sin and the temptation. No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. And when you're being tempted, God will give you a way out, the scriptures declare. And he's wanting Theophilus to know this. And I'll tell you what, at this stage in the Roman Empire, if he's a senator, he knows sin. It's like being in Washington today. I'm hearing stories about what's going on in that city that are just God-awful. And, and, and if you can, the closest thing to eternal life on this earth is a government job and they are doing, the, housing is just ridiculously expensive because governments so increase that in Washington, D.C. to find any property there is just off the charts. And, and they know decadence. All of our money is flowing into that one little spot in Washington, D.C. and it's supposed to come back out. It gets there, but it doesn't quite get out. And, and, and they know decadence. And Theophilus, at this stage in the Roman Empire, this guy, is pro he knows probably every addiction there is to have. He's probably done every bit of it. And he's hearing this, and he's hearing a hope that's beyond this, this level of achievement he's acquired and realizing his life is empty. It's the people at the top that, that need the touch of the Lord in their life, just like the people at the bottom and all the points in between. He says, so... This power is going to come on high, from on high, but they were to tarry in Jerusalem until you were endued with power from on high. So the book concludes, and you can imagine this, this, this 
gospel being sent to Theophilus, he reads it, he gets to that last, and dude with power from on high, where's the rest of it? Luke, where is it? And then all of a sudden, the Acts of the Apostles come forward. And the beauty of the way in which these were written is they were written on vellum and you would unroll them. So it begin with the very first beginning and they give the salutation who it was from. Because in our letters today, it says who it's from at the bottom and we can see it on one sheet of paper. Well, if, if you had to do that, you have to roll the whole thing, just get it. Okay, that's who it's from, I'll read it. No, they would put who it was from at the beginning. And so as it opens up, it says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, he's all, yes, yes, okay, here's the answer, what is it? Of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles. Yeah, I remember reading that. To whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs. I saw that, yes, being seen by them during the 40 days speaking. I, I believe all this. Get to the point. Where's the power? He says, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. I remember that. Yes. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, I remember that, yes. And we're going to see what that power is in the next verses. But I want to stop for a minute. Jesus began both to do and to teach. And when he commanded the apostles, fascinatingly enough, what he commanded the disciples is, is to teach repentance and remission of sins and to preach this in all the nations. And this is exactly what Luke is doing with Theophilus. It's exactly what Luke is doing with Theophilus. But I wanted to share with you something that occurred to me. In the book of Revelation, there's a really cool church in the churches that are listed. It's in Revelation 3. And, and I've been watching this series called Turn about the American Revolution, the spies in the American Revolution. Fa- fascinating show. Some things you have to close your eyes and fast forward through. I'm not advocating that. But I think, um, historically speaking, it's a pretty fascinating depiction of the revolution. And they were in Philadelphia, and, and, um, and I was thinking about that city and how it was the, the center for spying and how the British had occupied it for a season of time. And, but I, I came across this as I was looking at the churches. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, verse 7 of chapter 3 of Revelation, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, and he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. You have a little strength, for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. When was Revelation written in accordance or in, in contrast to when Luke was written? How many years do you think passed from Luke chapter 24 to Revelation chapter 3? 50, 50 years. So we're going to read in the book of Acts where the church isn't going to just be added to daily. It's going to be multiplied daily. The church is going to explode. It is going to just conquer all the Roman Empire. And within 50 years of the book of Acts that we're reading, of the commandment that Luke wrote to Theophilus, of this inspiration and power and and empowering of the Holy Spirit, and and the Roman Empire being absolutely dominated by by Christian ideals, it's going to come, and and not only that, not just, I'll share with you this, not only did the gospel take over all of Rome, people think that, people think the gospel 
went from from Israel up into or or from Israel up into Europe and that we were the sole recipients of the gospel and then you know our missionaries sent it into Africa and into China time out time out and I did take that course but do you remember the Ethiopian eunuch hello of Candace and he's riding back to Ethiopia. And by the way, Ethiopia was the term that they had for Africa. It wasn't just Ethiopia. It was all of Africa. It mean burnt face one. And, and who runs up to the chariot? None other than Philip. And, and here, here you have a black man who is well-educated, very wealthy, speaks multiple languages, reading the book of Isaiah... In Hebrew, and ask for Philip's help. What does this mean? And he's at Isaiah 53, and they go through the gospel. He presents, he says, he believes, and he says, what, what hinders me from being baptized? There's some water. Baptizes him, and then Philip is caught up and disappears. What do you think happened with that treasurer in the court of Candace, the queen? The gospel went into Africa. Did a white man take it? We love to be so color-centered, don't we? Yeah, that's where the gospel started. The Coptic church and, and many of the churches in Africa were there long before a white man got there. Don't ever forget that. And, and, the, and the gospel spread. And yet here we see he says, you have a little strength and you've kept my word and you haven't denied my name. They've got a little strength left. They've kept their word. They haven't denied the name, but every other church is struggling. This one's holding on to the commandments. Jude, when, when Jude is only one chapter long, and Jude said, when he began his writing, he said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. See, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, what we have in Christ and how exciting that is. I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. By the time Jude's writing and John, the apostle John is writing Revelation, the church had lost its faith. They were having no impact in the world. The church was waning. It goes cyclical. It, it goes ebbs and flows. And I look at America today and it's not until we're challenged or, or were decimated. And the great joy for me is, similar to the church in Philadelphia, it wasn't rebuked. Paul says, your strength is, is small. I've said before you an open door, no one can shut it, for, for you have a little strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. What do the churches try to avoid today if they want to be popular? Sin, blood, hell, Here's the worst one, repentance. If you're sitting in a church and you're not changing and you're not uncomfortable, you're unconscious, yeah. You are, you're drugged. You're not with us. We need to give you shock paddles. But you can sit in a church and never hear anything about repentance and sin and, and 
and, and the, the need for blood to be shed for the remission of sins, you'll never hear anything about damnation. You'll never hear any. Why do you have to always talk about that? Because that's the commandment to the church. It's the only thing that's going to save people. I, I say to, and I call them this, I, I say to my, my LDS brothers and sisters in faith, they have faith in a, in a different gospel, but I say my brothers and sisters in faith, because they're, they're pursuing these things. But I tell them candidly, I say, you have three heavens and no hell. And I have a heaven and a hell that I have to preach. Yours is a far easier sell. Mine's a tougher sell. But I contend that mine is true. Because nobody spoke more of hell than Jesus himself. Because he didn't want anyone to go there. If there's three heavens and you're just going to end up in one, and all it is is for somebody nice to show you the way, why did he have to be bloodied? Why, why was the crucifixion so brutal? I know they believe in atonement, but the intensity of the atonement, that we've violated God. Now, I know a lot of Mormons don't consider themselves to be polytheistic, and I know the God-makers is not something that, and as I'm starting to understand more, that's not something that they would completely hold to. But I would say this, that atonement is sinless blood shed on the cross for the remission of our sins. We have committed cosmic treason. We have sinned against God. We were created to love him. We abandoned him. As, as Dr. Lumala pointed out, whatever that fruit was, when it opened up, it had every ingredient to just send viruses through the world. And I thought that was a brilliant insight. I'd love to read that book. And how it just, the whole world was diseased the minute sin entered. And, and mankind used to live for hundreds of years even after sin had entered, but we started to de- de- decline and decrease. And I mean, we've got ailments you can't even imagine. You've, you've watched how the DNA structures and things that have affected mankind and diseases that have run rampant and how it's just all been tweaked and screwed up. I mean, you, you look through medical books and there's stuff that just gives you the, e- the heebie-jeebies as you're looking through them. How, how, where did that come from? Have you ever seen a bot fly? It lays an egg in your, in your back. And you're like, what is that? And it just gets bigger. And all of a sudden this worm like this long comes out. It's like a big, they have to pull it out with tweezers. It's creepy. And before it flies away, it lays eggs in you. I know that's sick, but welcome to the fallen world. I just don't think God intended that. Have you ever seen the guy? Well, I'll leave it alone. I, I, I could go all night. The point is this. Luke is going to begin to tell Theophilus through the book of Acts the antidote to a world that has imploded. And that antidote, for the first time in the history of the world, will we'll send light radiating through an empire and it will affect their governments it'll affect their entertainment every city was inundated with prostitutes it will change child labor laws it will change slavery codes it will change the formation of the family 
It will align the world in a way that has never before been seen in the history of the world. Governments will begin to flourish. Commerce will be created. Roads will be built. Societies will be honored. People will walk streets without having to lock their doors or carry weaponry. It will absolutely transform the world. And the first man that's receiving is a government official. And we're talking about God using us as a change agent in the world around us. Again this week, twice. I'm, I gotta tell you, I'm tiring of it. Again this week, twice. I don't understand how as a pastor that uh, the Bible says that you can't serve both God and mammon. I write back. I'm not serving two gods. I'm serving one God in two places. Believe it or not, God can go other places than the four walls of the church. And if I'm serving government and that's my God, please don't vote for me. When are we going to get it through our heads that when Christ touches a life, he changes a community? Babies live. Slaves are set free. Marriages hold together. People are delivered from drugs. Communities change. But within 50 years of the power of this book, Jude is writing and saying, I have to exhort you to contend for the faith again. John is writing to the church in Philadelphia, you're the only one of all the churches that hasn't lost their faith and kept God's word and not denied his name. We don't even like to say Jesus Christ anymore. We don't, we don't even like to be, we almost feel like we have to apologize for it. I, I, the, the way I hear ministers now using the word God. It's almost like they have to apologize as the word's leaving their mouth. You know, God, we, God, we just, God, God, almost as though the people they're talking to are going to be offended by it. The gospel's offensive. That doesn't mean go out and try to be offensive. That means grace and truth. It's a balance. You know, I can imagine Paul serving Theophilus. He's so moved that he gives Paul his servant Luke. He's touched by Luke. Luke's an educated man. Luke's a gifted man. And, and that surrender, seeing how Paul served Theophilus and how Theophilus serves Paul through Luke and watching how Luke serves mankind. And here we are blessed. You're going to receive from this physician one of the most profound accounts of the transformation of mankind, of the world as we know it, and government as we know it. When Luke points out that this power, endued with power from on high, comes from the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn about the Holy Spirit, the forgotten person of the Trinity. The book is going to speak all about him. And I know he's forgotten because we, we talk of him as though he's a some sort of a force. We say, have you received the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit? 
You mean, have you received him? Personal pronoun? Him? He's a person. Not a power, not a force. He's a person. He's the spirit of Christ. And we, we, we you have the Holy Spirit? Where, where'd he go? What, what is it? How do I get that? Oh, it's over there. It's in Brownsville. No, it's in Pensacola. No, it's up in Toronto. Oh, 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 The Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity. He takes up residence in our life. He empowers us to overcome sin and to put it into remission. We have victory. And the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, He is the Spirit of Christ. That means, quite frankly, in the Scriptures, if Christ didn't do it, I don't think the Holy Spirit's going to ask you to do it. If Christ asks you to do it, you're probably going to end the, the Holy Spirit. He'll ask you to do it. And we're going to see this, this, this person of the Trinity manifest himself in the life of the church, and it's going to transform the church. So I want to conclude with this last thought. The book was written by a physician who trained in either Alexandria or Rome highly educated. You're going to see words that we're going to cover in our our reading of this that aren't found in any other portion of the New Testament. Over 300 of them. We're going to enjoy this study. It was written, and and this is one more takeaway. It was written to Theophilus as a lover of God or loved of God. So I want you to receive this. I want you to put your name in the place of Theophilus because you're loved of God and you're a lover of God. This book was written for you. It's written for all those who love God. And Theophilus, if you think God doesn't want to change culture, the book began with a writing to a senator. I would say that's pretty culturally changing. Or maybe even a governor. And this is the, the part that when you saw in the um, Mel Gibson's film The Passion of the Christ you saw the nails go in you saw the rock split and the earth shake and then you see the folded clothes and the movie concludes with a brief glimpse of the resurrection that's all great I'm touched by that I see the cost of it. I've never seen the movie again since the one time I watched it. I walked in with a Diet Coke and a bag of popcorn. I didn't eat a piece of Coke or drink any of the, uh, of the so- I didn't eat a piece of popcorn and drink any of the soda. I've never been able to watch it since. I've seen clips as we've shown it on Good Friday and even there, I just, I can't even watch it. It wasn't entertainment to me. And, and, it, and it sought to show the cost and portray it through all the, the imagery and the magic of Hollywood, and it did a very good job. You want to talk about a man whose life imploded immediately after doing that. He had a target on his back, and that guy tanked, Mel Gibson. But what's missing? Okay, so, so he had the daylights beaten out of him. He rose from the dead, but what, what did it do? We're going to see what it did. It's going to transform the world. And what it, what it did back then, it can do today. Amen. So in the coming Wednesdays, let's get ready to 
have our lives touched and transformed. Amen?